gather around the lamp and Aston Villa podcast. If at first you don't succeed, come back next year and try again. Aston Villa celebrates the pleasure of promotion to the Premier League. It's episode 25 of the Gather Round the Lamp podcast by underagaslitlamp.com. We've got a new piece of cover art, we've got lots to talk about. I'm Regan, your host. You can find me on Twitter at FindFoy, and I'm joined as always by Mark. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Mark Droby here. You can find me on Twitter at VillaMarkPGH. It's been a busy week for the Villa, Regan. Let's get into it. Yeah, the podcast a day late because of the Brighton Carabao Cup fixture, um, which we, we will evidently cover. But first, it's probably best to discover uh, discover cover the uh, Arsenal game and all of the drama that happened over the weekend. Yeah, there was a lot to talk about uh, unpacking the Arsenal game and, you know, I don't know, the performance was there in spurts, but, uh, man, the drama, it, it, it had me honestly like pretty, pretty messed up for a couple of days if I'm being honest. I don't know about you. I think that's the same when Villa lose any game though. Like it all, it's always seems to be like a loss hangover. Um, you know, I go to work Monday morning and I work with a load of Wolves fans and a Blues fan. Um, so, you know, if, if Villa haven't, um, haven't won. I usually get it in the neck, um, but you know, recently it's been been the case of me going into work and people saying like, "Oh, what happened?" Like, and they're kind of like on on the same wavelength as me in terms of like, yeah, like Villa deserve more from that because really a lot of the stuff that's been going wrong has been partly Villa's fault and partly the fault of referees and VAR. Yeah, it's just been weird bounces, weird decisions, um, unfavorable decisions that happen against Villa, and it's it's starting to like be a trend that these like very strange instances are happening, or the things that are happening. You think VAR is going to step in, and then it doesn't, or things that VAR shouldn't step into, it's stepping into. It's just it's such a weird time for Villa right now, and um, I don't think you're getting a better definitive explanation of that more so than the Arsenal game. Yeah, the Arsenal game seems to be the one that uh, it's the one that got away for Villa. Um, you know, it, it could be a game that we look back on and we'll wish that we at least took a point from. Um, you know, it, I think I think the same can be said in a load of games. You know, we we should have probably come away with a point against Crystal Palace. We should have probably come away with more than a point against West Ham. Um, but it, it was despite the the poor end result, uh, really a, a decent performance from this newly promoted side. It it didn't look bad from Villa, and like you said, them being a newly promoted side, um, going up against, I guess you can say, top teams of the league. I mean, you can say what you want about Arsenal, but they are still in that conversation, even in the modern day. Um, for me, it looked like Dean Smith came out, and his players were prepared to just play their own game. And you don't see that with a lot of newly promoted sides. They usually go up against the bigger sides, and they want to sit back. They want to throw an extra central defensive mid on the field. You know, there's there's a lot of different things you can do to stop. You know, premier premier top. top Top talent and Arsenal does have more than a few players that are some pretty pretty massive talent in the Premier League. So I'm proud of of the players based on that aspect that they weren't gonna you know let Arsenal push the game down their throat so to speak and things of that nature. So that's to me that's one of the big positives you can take out of the Arsenal game is that early on, especially in the first half, they weren't getting pushed around by Arsenal. It actually seemed like Arsenal were a little bit nervous and weren't expecting Villa to to be so uh, determined on the ball and to try to exploit some of the weaknesses of Arsenal playing out from the back. Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty dominant from Villa starting off in the game. And and really the first big piece of action in the game was uh, Anwar Algarzi's cross. Uh, it was a really good cross. He kind of like swiveled on the ball, um, went onto his right foot and, and just crossed it into the really the penalty spot. And uh, John McGinn was there to shin the ball home for the uh, the opening goal. I think it was a little bit of, um, you know, there's two sides to every story. There's two sides to how every goal materializes. Uh, not to discount the cross from El Ghazi. It was a really, really nice cross. I need to see more of that from him. He needs to be able to put really nice crosses into the box. But I also think it was a case of the Arsenal defense sleeping a little bit. And that's why John McGinn looked like he was about 
at least five yards off sides when he first saw it happen live. Um, obviously, he wasn't off sides and they awarded the goal. But um, I think it was a little bit of a really, really nice cross from El Ghazi and Arsenal still kind of being a little shaky at the back. But, you know, it's a good goal for him again. He, you know, he obviously has a nose for goal this season so far. So, you know, to keep that up is going to be going to be pretty important at Villa, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the statement that we, we need to see more from El Ghazi, really. Um, he's he is one of those players we discussed it before that blows hot and cold. Um, and I think, you know, some some people keep in, in their mind, you know, the goal in the uh, playoff final, uh, the performance against, against West Brom, um, his performance against Bristol City. And those are really great performances, but we need to have, you know, regular form from El Ghazi. You know, he needs to have like five or six games in a row that where he's performing well. Because um, that's the kind of player that you expect him to be, but he doesn't quite live up to those expectations at times. I think that's uh, kind of the problem that's going on at Villa right now with some of the newer signings and even like Al Ghazi, obviously he's been here, but it's just the consistency. Uh, you'll see him have, you know, not just supremely just on El Ghazi's shoulders, but there's a couple players where you'll see them have a really good game or they'll have a couple actions in a game that are really, really positive. And then the game after that, it's like uh, he he played. He, he was actually on the pitch and that that's something that's a little concerning to me but you know yet again like it's like that's i it's almost to the point i'm tired of saying it but like these players are still buying into a whole system and you know there's only 38 games in a premier league and we're now six going into seven games in but you know that's that's still just going to be how it is i think it's going to be you know players show up you know at times and not so much at others and it's not a knock on them but the consistency is massive they're going to have to find a standard of consistency and actually start to start to play at, at least a little bit more consistent it doesn't have to be you know 100% all the time but like these you know efforts that kind of seem like it's 60 70% effort that's not going to get it done and that's not going to keep villa in the premier league yeah um so after McGinn's uh goal you know though it, it, you, you've said it already, it showed class from our players, but also show, showed uh, a poor bit of, I guess, um, positioning for one and defensive prowess for two for Arsenal. Um, and, you know, not not too far afterwards, Tyrone Mings had a chance that, we, that he headed wide, um, but he was ruled offside. Do you feel that Mings needs to be uh, a bigger part of set pieces? You know, he's he's six foot three, uh, he's strong, athletic. Do, do you think he should be involved a lot more? I know he's always up there for a corner or like an indirect free kick, but do you think like players should be aiming for him a bit more? I, I think it's something with the set pieces as far as Tyron Mings that there's a couple different options for either a corner taker and, and swinging indirect uh, free kick. So I think I would love to see Mings be the focal point of those opportunities. I also think that Wesley is another target out there. So it's almost kind of hard for, I mean, scoring's down from corners. Everybody knows that it. it's written about all over the place. It's talked about. There's videos of it. There's statistics. It's crazy that everything about the corner in the game of football isn't really doing much for the game. So um, I think on corners, it's going to be a little bit tricky to actually get one of those to be pulled off. Dean Smith seems to love a set piece, and I know they work on him really hard. He's talked about it in uh, in previous interviews, even all the way going back to last season. So I think Tyron Minks has the ability to be a threat on set pieces. I also think that at certain phases of the game, you don't always see him go forward. Like he's not always there looking for a goal. Sometimes he's a little bit backed off more so toward like the middle of the penalty area, like almost on the penalty spot. And I think that's more so in case the ball goes the other way for a quick counter attack. Again, that all comes into knowing your opposition and knowing how they deal with uh, corners and free kicks and things of that nature. But I, w- I would love to see Mings get more involved. But again, I think there's a couple different options out there with, you know, a player al- arriving late in the box. You know, Wesley's a big body as well. Um, you know, Jorn Ingles isn't a small guy either. So I think there's a lot to unpack there as far as, you know, set pieces and where your threats are coming from on those. But I'd love to see Tyrone get involved just a, just a little bit more. It doesn't have to be a lot. Well, yeah, you mentioned Bjorn Engels, and that was something I was going to uh, raise myself, is that, um, you know, doing doing research before he signed, he he was a player that scored an awful lot for, for his old team uh, from set pieces. I think he, off the top of my head, this is probably going to be wrong, but off the top of my head, I think he scored seven goals or eight goals last season. Um, someone will have to fact check that for me. But um, 
you know, I, I'm I'm expecting to see more from him in terms of you know getting on the end of set pieces because it's been shown that he can do it. Um, so we, we you know, I think he's had one chance that I I can remember off the top of my head since we've been in the prem, and that's against Everton. Yeah, I remember that chance. I think he skimmed it. I think it went just wide of a near post, I want to say. But yeah, I, th- I think you are uh, right that Ingles did score a crazy amount of goals for a center back, to be fair. But uh, if he can get that to translate to, to the Premier League in any which way, that would be awesome. Even if he got three or four, I don't even need the seven, as you said it was. Um, again, we'll fact check that and figure it out. But uh, yeah, I just think that Villa can and has the ability and has the talent to be a little bit more dangerous from set pieces and make teams kind of look around a little bit like, oh man, how are we going to stop these four or five, sometimes even six guys, and then someone standing on the edge of the box in case the ball falls to them. And, you know, I, I trust Dean Smith and the coaching staff. I'm sure they'll get that right. And I'm sure that's a part of the game that they're looking to improve. As, as well as many other areas. Yeah, definitely. Um, but let's, if we go back to the game for a second, um, it was another key moment um, for Aston Villa. And it was Ainsley Maitland-Niles being sent off. You know, there was the key moment against West Ham, which saw Arthur Masawaku get sent off. And there was the key moment against Arsenal, which was Ainsley Maitland-Niles getting sent off. Um Firstly, what are your thoughts on on the challenge? It was a second yellow card um, for a challenge on Neil Taylor. Um, go on. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 kind of one of those things where like I, I get it that that it probably was a second yellow, but uh, I'm not I'm not really sure it's a sending off. I think both players are just going after a ball, and it kind of looked a little nasty on Neil Taylor. Um, I think Taylor sold it really well, if I'm being honest. He didn't look like he really, uh, after it happened, it didn't look like he really had any ill effects <laughs> of the challenge by Maitland-Niles. So, I mean, I definitely think the sending off is, I guess, warranted. I don't know. Not Maitland-Niles was running around the pitch kind of putting in cheeky little tackles and, you know, holding on to people and stuff. So I think John Moss just kind of got sick of it, to be honest with you. I, I do think it was a second yellow, but it wasn't the challenge. It was the follow-through. Um and, you know, that's where things get a bit murky in terms of whether he should be booked or not. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I think it, it probably it probably deserved to be sent off. Um, I think if you look at the, the two challenges that Trezeguet was sent off for, I think you've got to send Ainsley Maitland-Niles off for his two challenges. Um, after the sending off was given, were you optimistic about Villa's chances about Arsenal? Or... Were you a bit scared? Like, here we go again. You know, they're down to 10 men. Are we just going to, you know, self capitulate? See, for me, I'm trying to shed the years and years of abuse of being a Aston Villa supporter where I'm always thinking negatively whenever, even when something positive happens. Um, I've really been working hard on that the past couple seasons, and it's been a, a good past couple seasons to start thinking that way. So, as the sending off happens, I, I was ecstatic. To be honest, I was like, okay, we, we just dealt with this last week at West Ham. We know what we did wrong. We know that what we tried to do didn't work. So let's get another shot at this. You're getting one of the very, very rare opportunities in football that you're, you're getting to take the lesson again after you just kind of learned it. That doesn't happen in sports very often to where you're, you're, something happens that it doesn't really need to happen and you kind of blow it a little bit. And then the next game, you're put right back into the same exact kind of situation. And I was ecstatic. I was like, okay, they're going to learn from their mistakes. Dino's got these guys knowing you can't be doing what you did against West Ham. And then it just didn't look that way. I mean, did you feel optimistic about it? Did you think Villa were going to take their, their chance against Arsenal with the main advantage? See, I was I was the opposite. I was sat there thinking, uh, have we going to like have are we going to have learned from our lesson? Um, against West Ham, and I, I was sat there thinking, you know, if Arsenal come come out of the the uh, the gates here, then we're, we're gonna we're gonna struggle. Um, but you know, initially towards the end of the first half and the start of the second, it wasn't the case, and you know, my my pessimism slowly turned to op- optimism. Um, you know, Villa kicked off the second half in an attractive way, um, and they didn't really seem like they were being outplayed. They actually looked like they were giving Arsenal a bit of a hard time until Bjorn Engels gave up a penalty against Matteo Guendouzi. Yeah, I, I'm not happy about this instance of play uh, at all. 
and it doesn't have to do just with Gunduzi and then Ingles, I've got a problem with Marvelous in the combo. And if you look back at this entire pattern of play, and Gunduzi's running running that left hand side of the pitch, and you see that he, he kind of has that look like he's going straight to the penalty spot. He has one thing in his mind, and it's to carry that ball into the penalty area and look for a penalty. And who's the first person that's probably about three yards to Gwenduzi's right is Marvelous Nakamba. And he absolutely freezes. Frozen. He's stuck. He's rooted to the ground. He doesn't move. If Marvelous Nakamba even slightly goes over to Gwenduzi, even slightly, he doesn't need to throw a tackle, doesn't need to slide tackle, just put pressure on it, Gwenduzi's probably going to shut her off to the left, and it's probably going to be a cross throw in corner, you know, something like that. And I know that's a lot of situational, it's a lot of assuming, but I am so disappointed that Marvelous Nakamba let this man run into the heart of our defense and force Bjorn Ingles to make a, a knee-jerk decision that eventually led to a penalty. I'm, I'm, I, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm beside myself about it even now. <laughs> I, I don't think that Ingles necessarily had to make that tackle, but at the same time, I think, you know, he he, he presented the opportunity to Gwendouzi. I think if you watch it back, Gwendouzi goes down like a sack of shit. Like, he, he goes down so easily. Uh, like he, he, but that's obviously Premier League players now. They they're looking for the penalty. Um, Engels didn't need to make the challenge, but Gwendouzi made a meal of it. Oh yeah, Gwendouzi. I mean, it's a, a part of the language. It's a shit house move, you know. And it always it always was going to be. And you know, that's the kind of player he is. And to be honest, Gwendouzi and I like looked at a lot of his um, a lot of his more positive uh, movements on the ball. He doesn't do that. He he's not one to run through you know the the heart of the midfield he he's more of a of a cog you know that you just you know you give him the ball and he'll spray it out and then he'll eventually start moving forward he wants to be involved but not necessarily the score not necessarily the kind of player that runs and and tries to get into the penalty area so i don't know man i don't think angles even needs to be put anywhere near that situation if marvelous nakama is doing his job right and you know it's it's not a knock on nakama as a player but in that situation he's got to be a lot smarter he's got to help his teammates out we're all pulling in the same direction nakama needs to be there as well yeah and I mean after the game Nakamba said you know he's still learning he, he's still adjusting to life in England never mind the Premier League so you know you've got to excuse him a little bit but at the same time I do agree with what you said you know um, he needs to he needs to make smarter footballing decision there rather than you know uh, rest on his inexperience, I guess. Yeah, and I'm not slagging the guy off. It's just situational awareness, and I think that's lacking in a couple of the Villa players that we brought in that they're just not very locked in mentally when it really, like, when it really, really matters. You know, like in in the in this kind of instance, especially this very very unique situation, he's got to know he's got to at least put a little bit of pressure on that guy carrying the ball. But you you can't you can't just stand there rooted. It wasn't a good look for Nakamba whatsoever. Yeah, I guess so. But Arsenal would score this penalty, making the game one all. Um, and straight away, Villa had a chance, which which went uh, begging. And then, although almost immediately after, uh, you know, Jack Grealish made them pay the price for for their uh, for their starting the game from from the back. Little technique that they've been trying to do and failing at for the last couple of games. You know, they play they play a ball out of the defence and it lands to I think it lands to Neil Taylor, who plays it's Grealish. Grealish just runs forward probably 30, 40 yards into the box, straight through the spine of the Arsenal team, and slots in a nice ball to Wesley. And Wesley makes a very smart run off of the cross and just pokes it home to the bottom right corner. Yeah, I, I, that was Jack Grealish, I think, being pissed off. And <laughs> I think he was really mad about the fact that it was almost happening again. You know that we were almost about to blow blow a game with a man advantage. Um, yeah, so Jack makes this amazing, really like ba- basically just with pace, you know, believe it or not, and just blows past, you know, the spine of Arsenal and, you know, crosses the ball over. But I really liked Wesley's run. Um, instead of trying to wait for the ball to come to him, he kind of went for the ball. He kind of um, – turns around Socrates to the left of him. He's on his back, and then as soon as Jack crosses the ball, I missed the, the very, very millisecond that Jack goes to cross the ball in. Wesley kind of just dips around to the left of Socrates just very, very slightly, and it doesn't. it's not a massive run. It's not something to where it's very attractive, but it's effective. And if Wesley can start 
getting the idea that these balls that are coming from wide areas and it's up to him to go where the ball's at and not wait for the ball to come to him, I think Wesley's going to kick off. So I think this this goal, as big as it was for Villa at the time to, to you know, go back up 2-1, I think was also big for Wesley to kind of – I'd like to see more of that from him, and I really think that's where his strength's going to be in the Premier League. I'd like to see more of that type of goal in general. Like, I'd like to see us attacking Burnley that way this weekend. Um, but I've been speaking to you about this, Mark, and it's that we haven't got a chant for, for Wesley Moraes yet. Um, there's been a lot of talk on Twitter as well, a bit of lack of chant. Um, so while I was pretty bored at work, I was just racking through my brain of ways that we could probably bring a Wesley chant in. And I was thinking uh, perhaps Let It Be by The Beatles, you know, Wesley, Wesley. Um, I don't know what the uh, the little bit between between the Let It Be's would be. Um, you know, that's one for Twitter to decide. But you know, perhaps we can hear uh, that from from the whole tend on on Saturday. I think I'm leaving it a bit a bit short notice for that to happen this weekend. But you know, I think he deserves a chance. I think I read an interview early on uh, into his into him signing. And it said that he thrives from, you know, people chanting his name. Right. So we're going to have to get something for him. And I, I do like it. I think it's a great idea with the Beatles tune and everything like that. But just, just like you said, the, the whole thing of him feeling appreciated by the fan base and us cheering him on. And even if it's a, a very light chant, it doesn't have to be anything that has paragraphs of lyrics to it. Just something very, very simple. So he knows, hey, you're one of us. We're with you. We're going to sing your name. We want to see you kick on. We know that you're capable of doing better. We know that this is a little bit of a maturation process for you. So here we're going to, we're going to sound off our appreciation. And it's, it's, I, I get it that in some points it seems like, Oh, we really have to baby these players by singing their name. That, that means a lot when, when you're on any, it doesn't matter what sport it is. When, when you're on the arena of your sport and, and the fans are cheering for you or your name or something like that, it gives you that little bit of added extra. It gives you a reason outside of yourself and your teammates to you know kick on and really do your job so i think in, in with wesley we have to get this man a chant i don't i don't necessarily don't even care what it is just something to where when he's having a rough game or something like that he knows that the fans are still through him and they believe in what he can do yeah completely you know it, even if it's not the, the the let it be uh tune we, we do need something to kind of let him know he's appreciated especially in the absence of koji you know he needs something to be playing for he doesn't really have much competition i know keenan davis is uh is impressing lately but you know where's uh, keenan davis said himself in an interview with the athletic uh that he knows that wesley's the main the main man um with Codger out, you know, he's got no competition, so we need him to be thriving off something else, and that's the the, the love from the fans. Yeah, I I love Keenan Davis, and I, I want to see him, you know, flourish, and I think it's a little bit unfair for him, and it's, it sounds crazy to say it, it's a little unfair for him that we got promoted, because I think that if we, if we would have stayed in the championship, Keenan Davis might get a lot more playing time. I love the move from Dean Smith and the coaching staff and even the scouting department not to dispatch him out on loan. It shows to me that they have a belief in him. They have a belief in what he can bring to the, the field. So I, I really like Keenan Davis. I mean, I, I think I say it almost every podcast, how much I like him. And uh, I, I just think that there's something there. I think that he needs to stick with Villa. And even if he isn't the main man and he's not, you know, first name on the on the team sheet every week, I think if he hangs around, develops a little bit, um, I think his hold-up play is, is second to none as far as players on the current Aston Villa roster. So, um, yeah, just ho- hoping to see Keenan kick on. And, it, you know, it's no disrespect to Wesley. I, I, I like Wes a lot, too. And I just, I just need to see a little bit more from him. And, you know, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to see the best parts of him. Hopefully, yeah. Um, it, Lucas Torreira and Joe Willock entered the pitch in the 70th minute. And this is kind of where things started to go bad for Aston Villa. Um, Tyrone Mings found himself under pressure in his own penalty area and headed like a cushioned effort um, towards Neil Taylor. And Taylor couldn't, you know, he sold Taylor, you know, he sold Taylor short, really. A lot of people were, were blaming Taylor, but it was Mings' mistake. Um, and the ball lands for Callum Chambers and he pokes it into the roof of the net for uh, to, to equalise, basically. Um, and it, it seems as though Villa were, you know, just struggling with playing with the man advantage. Um, they they look tired at this point. And, you know, it raised questions about Dean Smith's man management 
you know, do you, do you think that that Smith let the team down by not introducing substitutes earlier? Um, and as well, what do you think about the El Mahamedi sub? You know, I, I feel like personally it sent the wrong message to the the the, the playing staff. You know, it was almost like okay, we're bringing a defensive kind of player in a, in an attacking position, but we're bringing a defensive player on, so we're going to try and protect this lead rather than push forward. I think a lot of the uh, the questions that you're asking, also uh, to preface the preface the answer to the questions, uh, Dean Smith's learning too, and I think that's something that's not really talked about a lot. Everyone talks about oh, these players have no Premier League experience, these players aren't playing well enough. You know, all that kind of thing. Well, Dean Smith's learning too. And yeah, I, I do feel a little jaded towards him that he didn't utilize his substitutes earlier on in the Arsenal game, especially in the midfield area. And listen, we all love John McGinn and we all love Jack Grealish. And that's that's Villa right now. That's the Villa midfield. And then you, you rotate the, the other third member of the midfield. But to me, you have to know when to take these players off. Nothing bad is going to happen with with Dean Smith's relationship with the Aston Villa fan base, if he has to drag one of these guys off, they were knackered. Both of them, McGinn and Grealish, were shattered. They had nothing left in the tank. I honestly feel whenever Grealish makes that 30-35 yard run to set up the Wesley goal, that was it. He emptied the tank. To me, it was pretty obvious. So I think his man management, is he's got a learning curve just like everybody else. As far as bringing on Elmo, um, I don't think that that was the best thing to do. Again, I th- think it sent a message to the team that like, okay, well, now we're dropping back as Elmo's on the pitch. You can't be having that. Play- players coming on the pitch cannot dictate how your team plays. No matter who comes in and out and you shuffle those puzzle pieces any which way you like, as long as they match up, you, you, the players can't be dictating how, you know, how you're going to hang the picture you know, in, in a matter of speaking. That team has to play exactly how Dean Smith wants them, not to how the players want. So I think the El Mahamedy substitution did send the wrong message. Um, and Trezeguet was shattered too, but he, he was running his ass off the entire game uh, and for, for good reasons. Like he had a really, really good game. I really enjoyed Trezeguet's performance. I think that he, you know, is getting better. He's one of the ones that are like, you can see it almost in every game, you know, his sending off and his ban was unfortunate or whatnot. But yeah, I'm, Dean Smith's going to go through growing pains just like the rest of the squad is. How, how do you feel about it? No, I, I agree. You know, the, I do think the, the Elmo sub was the, the wrong thing to do. I think it sent the wrong message. Um, but yeah, you know, he is, he is learning and we, we've got to, you know, we've got to accept that. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've wrote about it before. Like we, we will criticize Dean. We've criticized him this week. Um, but we've wrote about it before how there's a real need for a legacy Aston Villa and regardless of where we've end the, the season, whether we're 10th or, you know, we're rock bottom with three wins all season, like in 2015-16, Smith needs to stay because he really needs to build a legacy here like like uh, Deich has at Burnley and like Howe has at Bournemouth. Yeah, I completely agree. And we've talked about this way, way earlier when we started, you know, podcasting with Under a Gaslit Lamp. Um, it's... It's the thing that Dean Smith doesn't get sacked. And I think he doesn't deserve No matter what happens, I think you have to keep it. Like you said, there's a legacy to be talked about here. And I, I just think that he's he's the man forward. And I don't think it's panic stations just yet. I, I saw a very, very, very small amount of people after the Arsenal game saying he needs to go. He doesn't know what he's doing. I think a lot of that was knee-jerk reactionary opinions. I don't really think anybody wants to see Dean Smith go no matter how bad it gets. Uh, so yeah, for me, he's, he's the man going forward. And again, he's learning too. So, you know, show, show the man some respect and, you know, he's, he's learning just like this is the highest level he's ever, you know, done his job as well. So you can't, you can't start criticizing someone, a, a head coach that basically has what seven games or six games Premier League experience. I mean, it's, it's just, it's unfair to the man. It's unfair to the club to start criticizing him on that standpoint of him maybe being on the hot seat. I don't, I don't think he ever gets into a hot seat situation this season. No, neither do I. Um, let's talk about the, probably the most controversial part of, of the game. And and that's the, the 84th minute. Well, it's one of the controversies, should I say. The 84th minute, Arsenal gained the lead through a Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang free kick. Um, so th- there's an issue here that, that Callum Chambers was interfering with the Aston Villa wall. And I wrote about this as it's, it's a matter of perspective. Um you know, he stood behind the wall, he's too close for what the rules should be allowed. But it's 
because I, 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 as, as far as I can remember, the, we've got like seven men in a makeshift wall, but they're separated four to three. There's a gap in the wall, and he's... I, th- I don't know if it's f- five... It might be five to two, actually. I can't remember. Um, but he's basically stood next to the two rather than the five. And for for the referee's perspective, he could be saying, right, there's nothing wrong with that because the, the rule is that it needs to be a three-man wall or more, I believe. Um, but the real issue for me is that Chambers rushes as, as Aubameyang takes the free kick and he pushes uh, Jack Grealish and Marvis Nakamba uh, the, the 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 former of that force of the floor. So really, that's a that's a foul in the build up to to the goal, and I'm pretty sure as well that he pushes Jack Grealish into the ball. I'm pretty sure it takes deflection. I'm not entirely sure, but I think you know there's there's an issue there, and I think it's about the referee's perspective. But then that leads us on to the the um, probably the most controversial part of the game. And that's uh, Conor Horahan was brought on as a sub after that goal, and he, he had a he had a shot blocked probably three or four minutes before the the, the full time whistle, um, and his shot was pretty much well, it was definitely on target, and it was it was pretty much going to probably nestle in the top left, um, but his shot was blocked by Socrates, um, and it was it was almost like an upper arm low shoulder kind of deal but personally I think that's a handball, he's made his body bigger to block the ball um, but where, where was John Moss? Where was VAR? Yeah this was a very very um, awful thing that happened to Villa it was probably about as peak Aston Villa as you can get, uh, being down away from home, you have the main advantage can't really cash in on it and then Connor Hurricane comes on late in the game uh, I believe he shot that ball with his left foot and he is to the right of the goal mouth looking at it. Uh, we've all seen that happen since Connor Hirehane's been at Aston Villa. We know that shot probably hits the net, not saying it goes in, but it probably is at least registered as a shot on goal. Uh, you know, it hits, uh, Socrates or Socrates, Socrates. Yeah. Um, and, uh, to me, it's a handball all day. Um, and the cries for VAR, and the more I'm seeing this Premier League season roll on, the more I'm convinced of it. This is a growing pain season for VAR. And you're going to get some really, really strange things that happen that you're going to say, where was VAR? And there's going to be other things where you're going to say, why was VAR even asked to look at this? Um, I've seen this in a multitude of different sports in my time being a big sports fan. It happened in the NFL. It happened in the NHL, which is ice hockey. Um, the first season with these kind of reviews are terrible for fans, which means that it is terrible for the players, which means it is terrible for the coaches, which means it's terrible for the club. And it's it brings me no joy to say that, but I think that this is a season, like they have to look at VAR once this season commences. They will not make any changes during the season. So everyone that's saying it needs thrown out, it needs bend, it needs changed, you'll get that. It will not happen. It will not happen until the end of the season. They're not going to start changing rules and changing what they look at in the middle of the season. If they do, I'll be very, very surprised. Again, I've experienced this. I've been through this before. I can only talk about myself personally. It's a tough pill to swallow, man. But I think it will get to the point where VAR has to check every single use of of handball. Now, I get it. You don't want to dictate what a referee is doing on the pitch. You don't want to basically referee the game you know, from all the way in London. I, I totally understand the, the arguments for and the arguments against VAR, but for me, it's just going to be one of those really weird seasons with this very, very new technology and how it's actually going to play out. I mean, how do you feel about VAR? Do you think VAR needs adjusted? Do you think it's okay? I mean, it's, it's a big talking point right now, right now in football, and it's not only just in England, it's in the world because different countries use VAR in, in some pretty different ways. I think we need the screens, and I think we need the screens to be used. I think that... Um you know, the the one time I've seen VAR work really well was at the last World Cup. Um, and I thought that worked well. I thought it added to the atmosphere. I thought it added to the excitement of the game. You know, there were times that I was watching it and perhaps it was because I, I, I wasn't supporting either team. But I'm pretty sure there was a game, I think it was like a Ran versus Portugal or something. Um, and 
Iran, you know, it, I can't, I can't even remember what happened, but Iran basically got a penalty through VAR, and then they had another decision where like a goal was disallowed through VAR. Um, and I was just like, oh my god, what's going on? This is so great, like this is like crazy. Um, but I think that the Premier League needs the screens because it allows the referee to walk over and look at his decision. You know, if he initially goes, no, that wasn't a handball, but he can watch that over and over again. VAR can say, right, John, we need you to look at this. There's an issue here. He can go over and go, actually, I've made a mistake here and reverse his decision. And do you think that's what it is, is that they don't want VAR undermining a referee and then the referee basically has to be forced into a situation where he has to apologize, which then in turn makes the supporters of any football team be like, well, why is this guy even a referee if he can't get a call right? Because that was, that was a hard thing in the NHL for a while when they first started doing things where it got sent to a, a secondary location to look at, at specific calls people were starting to jump down the backs of the referees when they blew that call and in some cases those referees got demoted into other leagues because of that you know is that something do you think the fa doesn't want to deal with and they're just like ah no we'll just kind of play this one by ear and if we think it's uh if if we need to step in uh, maybe we'll step in i think they're dealing with it without the use of the tvs so i don't i don't know what the, the the use of the tvs would you know I don't think it make much difference. I think it would it would improve things from my perspective. I think for me, it's one of those things where the, it, they're afraid to make their referees look like they don't know what they're doing. I think that's a big part of it. And, and if the game is to continue with this VAR, um, you're going to have to admit to the fact that your referees aren't right 100% of the time. I don't want a referee that's right 100% of the time. It takes away the human thing. Again, this is all thrown into the cauldron or the soup kettle of how is this going to work in England? How is this going to work in Premier League? Uh, how is the FA going to look at it? What can they look at? What can they not look at during a game? Uh, it, it's an absolute mess right now, and I don't know another way to say it. It's a mess, and they have a lot of things to consider and a lot of things to look at and they're going to get it. It's almost like this is almost like a, like a beta version of how they want VAR to be. At least it's perceived that way. So they're going to have to take all these instances. They see through this entire season at the end of the season and be like, look, we, we got to figure this out. If they don't, it's going to be so disappointing. Like I don't want this standard of VAR being the standard of VAR moving forward or else it's to me, it's, it's going to ruin the game a little bit. Yeah, I agree. But let's let's not rest on VAR. Let's let's not rest on the bad times. Let's let the good times roll. And well, let's discuss Villa against Brighton in the Carabao Cup. Um, I think we really desperately needed a win. Uh, you know, it, it, even if it was a cup competition, we we needed we needed to to get the good feeling back. Even though it wasn't that long ago that we we had our first win of the season, but. You know, a cup run breeds confidence, in my opinion. And Dean Smith started out a, a starting eleven that that had some fringe players and some starting eleven players: uh, Ezri Concer, Matt Target, Courtney Hawes, Keenan Davis, and Connor Hurahan, all featured in the starting eleven, as well as John McGinn, who was a bit of a surprise inclusion in the starting eleven. Yeah, I didn't think McGinn was going to actually get a game for this. I thought they were going to arrest him and Jack. I thought maybe they'd even leave Jack out of the team completely, but um, yeah, I guess you can't really be having that if you're uh, if you're Dean Smith. I really liked what the fringe players brought to this game. Um, it's always good to see Ezra Kansa. I think he's one for the future. Uh, Matt Target comes back after dealing with a little bit of a niggling injury. Courtney Horse is trying to establish his place in the team. Obviously, Keenan Davis is the secondary striker, and uh, Connor Horahane, it's Always good. I mean, I I just want to see more of Horahan just in general. So it was nice to see him get this uh, this Carabao Cup game. Yeah, and I think it was, it was it was it was good for a lot of players. You know, one man who's had a really mediocre start to his you know competitive life at Aston Villa at least um, was the first one on the score sheet, and that's Hotter. You know, he was the recipient of an easy opportunity to score after Horahan's cross fell to him, and the Spaniards slotted home in the twenty second minute as Villa took an early 1-0 lead. Yeah, and I think Hada, you know, he needs to he needs to assert himself a little bit more, um, you know, with Trezeguet coming back into the fold after his ban. 
I think he still remains on the bench, but when he gets his chances, he's going to need to take them. He's going to need to show Dean Smith and show the rest of his teammates that, you know, he he's able to do some things out there. And he definitely was able to do that against the albeit pretty young uh, Brighton Hove Albion side. But I think that he did everything he he needed to do. Um, you know, I saw little glimpses and little clips from the game and whatnot. I only got to watch it or listen to it rather as a radio stream on uh, AVTV. Um, but for I've I've reached out to a couple of people that were at the game and they said he looked really bright. So I hope that that uh, that works going forward. I think that the second goal of the night was probably our best team goal of the season. You know, it, it's hard to kind of put it in the same bracket as Douglas Luiz's goal against. Uh, Bournemouth but it was our best team goal um Target and Luis and Horahan uh wait was it Horahan I can't remember Target and Luis paired up pretty well um oh my god I'm getting all these players wrong Target and Trezeguet paired up pretty well Trezeguet was was quite skillful with his passing and a long ball over the top is played into Keenan Davis who has superhuman strength to, to get away from his man Push it into the into the uh, the box and then slice a ball over for Conor Hurahan to bury. Um, and really, it's giving Dean Smith something to think about. Hurahan needs to start more games, or at least needs to be subbed on earlier into games because he can make a real difference to a to a to a, a squad. He does make a real big difference to our squad, but he can make a real big difference to a game as well. I completely agree. And if you think Connor Horane's happy with the fact that he's playing uh, in cup games and only coming off the bench, go take a look at his uh, post-game presser from from the Brighton game, from this game specifically. Um, it, it's it's just he he looks he looks angry to me. He looks like an athlete who knows that that place is his, and he has players that maybe he might believe can't bring what he can bring. Um, the man needs to be starting games, and I fear that if he doesn't start more games than maybe uh, Douglas Louise and Marlis Nakamba, I fear that maybe he'll be off in January. He just has that look in his eyes of a man that knows that he kind of maybe got done wrong a little bit by Dean Smith. So it, it would be a, a smart thing to get him included a little bit more in, in the next couple months here. Um, I don't want to see Jorge leave. Um, in any capacity, I think he's a cog. For me, it's time to go back to the Jorge McGinn Grealish midfield and see how that how that goes for you. It's not a knock on the combo or Louise. I think they've shown what they can bring, albeit it's a very very early time in the season. I just think for the camaraderie, you talked all this. Well, not you, but um, Dean Smith and the coaching staff <laughs> talked a lot about um, you know keeping the spine together. They wanted. You heard it almost ad nauseum. We kept the spine together. We spent a lot of money, but we kept the spine together. Well, the spine of that team for long stretches of the season, last season, was Conor Horahan, John McGinn, and Jack Grealish. You brought in two midfield players that maybe play a little bit more defensive than, than Horahan's capable of, and you're starting them over them. But you kept the spine together, so use the damn spine. And to me, it's, it's, it's really common sense. Um, I don't think Louise is a player that stays at Aston Villa more than three seasons because of everything that happened with him in Manchester City. Uh, he has a release clause. Nakamba is good and everything, but I'd rather have him second fiddle to Connor. So, I mean, for me, I think Horahane deserves to. But yeah, if you look at that that post-match interview with him after the Brighton game, he looks completely beside himself. I don't think there's a better time for him to play either than the next couple of games. You know, we've got Burnley, we've got uh, Norwich, we've got Brighton again. There's another team in there that I'm missing. Um, but, you know, this is a great opportunity to go back to the spine and see what they can do in the Premier League because the only time they've had the chance to play is against Spurs and they did pretty well for the first 70 minutes of that game. Yeah, they did well. I I have no problem with that at all. I just I just think that Harahane, like you said, the next the next three games are going to be vital and I, I think that Villa can definitely pick up points in the next you know three league games but it's going to have to be something where Dean Smith's going to have to know that you know he's, he's going to have to know that you know you're coming up against Burnley you're coming up against Norwich and then you're coming up against Brighton and then the two games after that are Man City and then Wolves is probably going to be somewhere in the middle of that and then Liverpool so like the next the next like six seven games here like it's not a it, you can pick up points but you're going to have to pick up points against the teams that like you should be picking up points against yeah I I, I have to agree with that but uh, Villa went in at half time 2-0 uh, just like you knew would happen because you put a bet on and won your Jemmy Gert I did he 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 um 
And then you've completely lost me with that hee hee hee. <laughs> I'm so I'm I'm so happy about it. I mean, I don't I'm I'm not a big betting guy at all. I mean, I actually work at a casino, so I, I get to see like how how bad betting is. But yeah, I put a very very small bet on Villa being up two nil at uh, halftime, and it came through. And it, I I still can't believe it came through. But go ahead, sorry. Um, yeah. So the next team to score was, was Brighton. It was Hayden Roberts who gave. Uh, Villa is scary in the 61st minute, and that's that's a 70 year old, 17 year old player. Um, but you know, at this point, Dean Smith knew that he couldn't let the game boil down to nothing, and uh, on came Jack Grealish for John McGinn in the 66th. And just 11 minutes later, Grealish got his second Carabao Cup goal, making it 3 1 to Villa. I don't think it was ever a nervy contest really for Villa. I think Brighton really didn't care that much about the cup. They played a team with four or five senior players and the rest were all under 23s really. Um, but the the big thing about that is that it, 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 breathes, it breathes confidence. It's a win and it, it lets people like Concert, like like Hawes get game time. And uh, Villa got drawn against Wolves in the next round of the Carabao Cup, with the game being played at Villa Park uh, in the half-term week of October, the last week. And it's bound to be a great, great atmosphere. It's just a shame that it's a midweek game. Yeah, it's a shame it's a midweek game. Um, I'm just looking at my phone here, like when I was looking up to see who Villa were playing in the next like six or seven matches I was just talking about. My one app says that Villa play Wolves on Tuesday, October 29th. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that is smack in the middle of Man City and Liverpool. So this could be a game that where Villa might be getting a little beat up by Man City and then have to face Wolves, which I'm okay with. I think this is going to be a really good fixture for Villa. Um, Without all things considered, their strength of the opponent coming up, I think that Villa actually have a chance. If they're going to go on a little bit of a run in the league, it's going to have to be now, and it's going to have to be somewhat dominating. Um, again, the Brighton game, it's really, really nice to win. I think they needed that. It draws confidence. The confidence isn't just for the players on the field. It's for the coaching staff. It's for the trainers. It's for the tea ladies, believe it or not. It, uh, any kind of win, whenever you're going through a little bit of a rough patch, it lifts everybody at the club. It lifts everybody that's involved with the club. So I think this win was vital. I was never really nervy about it. Um, that, that Connolly, though, up front for Brighton, he looked really, really good. Uh, he, he gave Ingles, uh, or Ingles, he gave, uh, Ezri Kansa a little bit of a, a trouble on a multiple, multiple amount of, uh, occasions, but, you, you know, the team was able to do what they do best and stop, uh, him from being a threat whatsoever. So I, I, I like cup competitions, man. I always have, even being a Villa fan. I just think it's really exciting for me. And we haven't had the best terms and times and, you know, being in cup competitions the past couple of years. So it's good to see us actually get to the final 16 for a change. I think the the Wolves game might get moved. Um, they were talking about it at work today. That uh, I think they're playing in the Europa League on the Thursday. And then I think they've got Newcastle on the Sunday and then us on the Tuesday and then a Saturday game. So they've got four games in a very short space of time. And I could see the Villa game for them getting moved to the Wednesday. I hope it's moved to the Wednesday because I'm off work. But yeah, I was looking at that too yesterday. Wolves, their fixture list is real, real congested around that time. So maybe we'll even get a Wolves team that like cannot, absolutely cannot put a full strength squad out there. And that will play right into Villa's hands, I think. Yeah. But the most important thing is the next match for Villa. And that's against Burnley. You know, it's a big chance for Villa to start putting their best foot forward as we've been speaking about. Uh, Burnley have had a decent start to, to the Premier League. They're sitting in ninth. Uh, they've had two wins, two draws and two losses. And their confidence will be pretty high after uh, beating Norwich 2-0. After they've they've just beat... Um, Norwich just beat Manchester City before that result. Um, but it's it's looking like it's Chris Wood who's going to be the man in form, the man to watch for, for Burnley. Um, he scored both the goals against the Canaries. And you, they've also got uh, Ashley Barnes up front as well. Who's... Uh, I think he scored four in six... And, you know, it's not going to be an easy game by any means. You know, I could probably see this one ending in a draw. Yeah, I've got a, a decent friend of mine from uh, the pub to where I watched the Villa games. He's a Burnley fan. Uh, he's a little bit older than me. He's He's been watching Burnley for a long time. And uh, we, talk, we talked about joking around how, you know. That's such an odd choice. Um, it, it is an odd choice. And he told me it was a girl he dated in high school. 
her she there it was an all English family. They're expats, and uh, her dad was a big Burnley supporter. And to get closer with the dad, he was like, yeah, "I don't know anything about soccer. I'll come over and watch these games with you." And okay, he, that makes sense. Yeah, and he just started supporting Burnley after that. And him and him and the girl didn't work out or whatever. But um, he says he still calls that girl's dad, and they talk about Burnley probably like once a month. <laughs> so it's, it's you know it's the love of football that you know if you get involved in it with a person, it's usually a relationship uh, that, that lasts for a while. Um, but yeah, he was saying like Burnley's a team that it's whatever you think is going to happen. They find a way to produce the opposite. So if you go into Burnley thinking it's a rollover game, they're going to give you a game. They're going to find a way to, to draw. They're going to find a way to snatch a win late. Something of that. Um, he constantly says they're just, a, even though they play four, four, two, it's just a really fun team to watch. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think the Burnley game is a lot tougher than people think. I think maybe some Villa fans, like, with their arms crossed, looking down, like, oh, pitiful Burnley. Like, nah, man. Like, they they can play. And like we just said, they got a couple guys that can uh, they can score goals. And also, they have a they have one striker that, that Villa fans may remember. Jay Rodriguez? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the hand of Rod returns to the, the Villa Park. I, I think he's going to get a, If he does start the game or if he gets put on, I think you're going to hear a rain of booze coming down from, from all corners of Villa Park. Oh, yeah, definitely. But there'll, but there'll be a good... Um, I can't even think of the word. A good welcome for uh, Ashley Westwood and Matt Lowton, who are likely to play as well. Ashley Westwood was their uh, player of the year last season. And, you know, he's sort of one that was a bit of a scapegoat for Villa. But... He's he's been doing wonders for for uh, Burnley. Yeah, this is not the Ashley Westwood of yesteryear that you remember that he couldn't, for the life of him, make a pass forward. And he, you know, if he put in a tackle, it always looked like it was sloppy. Uh, Ashley Westwood, and you can say it was because it was at Villa. You can say, you know, while he was at Villa, he didn't have the best players around him. But he's a really, really good player for Burnley. Um, he he kind of controls it all out there in the midfield, and he, he'll drop down to help his defenders out a little bit too. So um, he he's one to watch for me because I think that he's going to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He didn't have the greatest time at Villa. He knows as well as anybody that the Villa fans were not very fond of him or his playing style while he was here. So that always produces a little bit of a uh, little bit of something to look out for. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's probably the best place to end this week's podcast. Um, you know, we've spoken about two games that have gone, one game to come. Um, and really it's, it, it's pairing the the negatives with the positives, isn't it? You know, we've got the negative from the Arsenal game, the positive from the Brighton game, and we're going into this this Burnley fixture as feeling kind of neutral about it, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I, that's what it is. I'm kind of like right in the middle. It's not even really sitting on a fence as much as it is just, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what Villa can do against Burnley. You know, they're they're a team that's averaging just over eight shots a game. So let's um. I don't know. I feel really, really uh, good about this game going in. I don't think it's going to be a great game, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping Villa can pull this out and get three points on the board here. And me, Mark, and me. Thank you so much, guys, if you have tuned in and listened. As always, give us a review, a comment, a like on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please share the podcast on social media. You know, you can retweet it on Twitter. Um, as always, give us a follow on Twitter at Villa Lamp, on Facebook, forward slash under a gaslit lamp, on Instagram at under a gaslit lamp. And you can see a range of opinion articles, news articles, and content on the Aston Villa women and the youth teams on www.underagaslitlamp.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and up the villa.